0: Hey, I just want to say thanks, uh, Rick, to you uh, and the church for putting this on. I just came out of Jim Hamilton's session. I guess many of you were in there. My heart's full. So what a a great thing to be gathered together on a Saturday morning and see this many people together to talk about marriage and sexuality and gender. And of course, we all know that that's linked into a display of the glory of God in the gospel. So there are a few things that we could be doing together in our time this morning uh, that would be of more practical value than that. My particular part uh, in this bit is to talk about how sexual intimacy in marriage points beyond itself to display the glory of God. And Jim touched on this a little bit, but as we'll see, the display of that glory is heightened uh, by its complementary design, by the union of complementary design and sexual intimacy. And my goal, as Rick said, is to try to exposit some of this biblically and theologically, uh, and, then, and then spend a little, a little bit of time towards the end thinking through some very practical outcomes of what that kind of theology of sexual intimacy means for the husband and the wife in the context of the marriage bed. There are things we won't be able to talk about, uh, so we won't say a whole lot about procreation, but procreation serves the very same purpose uh, in a very natural way, and Jim touched on that a little bit as well. I do hope to leave some time for Q&A at the end and uh, hopefully in kind of more of a talky uh, format like uh, as this one is, uh, that'll be an opportunity to do that. I did get to hear Rick's talk last night, but my guess is that there's maybe a little bit of overlap in the things that he said and a few of the things that I'll say. If there's redundancy, my apologies, but let me just say, if I say what Rick said, I feel like I'm in good company, so thanks for that. Hey, so why do I care about this topic? Rick was mentioning that my wife and I do a lot of premarital counseling. I teach a class on the theology of family at Biola, and out of that comes the opportunity, uh, both in that context and the context of our church, to do a lot of premarital counseling. My wife and I have done this uh, over the years, and we've really enjoyed it. One of the things that we've recognized that we need to do in the context of premarital counseling is give some good counsel, some good advice, some good recommendations and guidelines on the purpose and the practice of sexual intimacy in marriage. But as you know, the culture is massively skewed on what to pursue, how to pursue it, what to expect. This is one of the reasons that, that the pornography culture is so deplorable because of the way it sets up all kinds of false expectations and unattainable goals and unachievable outcomes uh, for, sexual, for sexual intimacy. So the culture is skewed on this. Over the years, my wife have, and I have, have read and thought and talked to people and prayed and studied. There's a lot of Christian literature on the topic of sexual intimacy and in marriage, and much of it is quite good, but we have found that even in uh, a good portion of that literature, the emphasis falls largely on matters of technique. Largely on matters of technique. Now, don't misunderstand me. Technique is not inherently problematic nor is it irrelevant because good husbands and wives who want to love one another well in the context of marriage will want to seek to express that in the marriage bed as well. So technique becomes relevant. The problem for us that we've kind of discovered in in our covering this turf over the years is that technique is often put before the foundation and the purpose the meaning of sexual intimacy. It gets the cart before the horse, as it were. And so while we're happy to, to, to discuss those kinds of things, it needs to be the, uh, the caboose and not the engine, so to speak. We need to start further back and in a larger context before moving on to considerations of technique. And so in order to do that this morning, we, we, we did some premarital counseling, but in order to do this, uh, that this morning, I want to just kind of use a, a very basic Uh, Architectural image, okay, and the architectural image is uh, the structure of a a building, and this is not going to be a well-designed structure, but the first thing that you do, I'm no architect, but the first thing that you do when you uh, build a building is you pour the foundation, right? So we're going to use the structure of a house or a building. We're going to talk about the foundation before we try to build floor one and floor two. As we go up, we get more practical. But at the foundation, we have to start at a deeply theological uh, perspective. So consider with me this image of a well-built home. Foundation is essential. It's essential for a house. It is essential for understanding sexual intimacy. So we need to ask this question. What is the purpose What's the foundational goal of lovemaking in marriage? And my answer to that question, uh, bear with me as we, as, we, as we elaborate on this, but my short answer to that question is that lovemaking in marriage serves the purpose or fulfills the function of being a covenant renewal ceremony. Hollywood won't tell you that. <laughs> a lot of the Christian manuals won't tell you that. But at, at, at its deepest uh, most fundamental nature, sexual intimacy and in marriage, is a covenant renewal ceremony. Now, wh- what are we talking about here? Um, biblical covenants are attended by signs or symbols. The signs and symbols of a covenant attest the greater reality of the covenant. So um, God makes a covenant with Noah, and that is signed or symbolized by the rainbow. God makes a covenant with Abraham, which is signed or symbolized by circumcision. In the New Covenant, we find that there are the signs or the symbols of baptism and the Lord's Supper that attest the reality of relationship with God through faith in Christ in the context of the New Covenant. Marriage is similar. Marriage is a covenantal relationship And the broader relationship is attended by, I think, two signs that are analogous to the signs attending the New Covenant. Uh, The first is the wedding ceremony itself. The wedding ceremony itself, it's a a ceremonial celebration. It's a symbolic celebration. Um, And in many ways, it's not a perfect analogy, but in many ways, the wedding day ceremony in marriage is analogous to the way that baptism stands to the reality of the new covenant. Both are signs of entrance into the covenant relationship, and Lord willing, there are things you only do once, right? Uh, Baptized once, Lord willing, married once, um, and and it starts or inaugurates the reality of that covenant experience. In marriage, lovemaking is more analogous to the Lord's Supper. Probably never heard that before, huh? (laughs) love lovemaking in marriage and the Lord's Supper in the context of new covenant life, they are the signs or the symbols of ongoing continued participation in those covenantal realities. Now, lovemaking is not the totality of the marital union, just like the Lord's Supper is not the totality of new covenant life, but it signs and symbolizes and reaffirms one's participation. This is why Jesus says, and Paul quotes him of the Lord's Supper, do this often. In remembrance of me. It is also why no couple has ever gone on their honeymoon, consummated the relationship and said, "That ought to hold us for 50 years." <laughs> right? Their desire is, is, is satiated, but it builds again to the point that they desire to experience that intimacy again and again and again throughout the course of their marriage, until death do they part. So love-making in marriage is a form of covenant renewal. It is a way of expressing, I still do. You may have heard of uh, husbands and wives on milestone anniversaries who have vow renewal kinds of ceremonies, 25th anniversary, 50th anniversary. Those, Those are fine things to do. There's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. What we need to understand is that every time a husband and wife unite themselves together in the marriage bed, they are renewing their vows. By the way, that is why intimacy, sexual intimacy, is required inside of marriage in God's design and requirement. In God's plan, you never celebrate the sign of a covenant where the reality of the covenant isn't present. You don't take the Lord's Supper where you do not trust the gospel. And for that matter, you do not partake of the sign of sex where the reality of marriage does not exist. I mean, even, even remember that this, uh, this interesting comment that, that, that Paul has in 1 Corinthians 11, where he talks about eating the Lord's Supper in an, in an unworthy manner. And he says, because some of you have done this, taken in an unworthy manner, some of you are sick and, and, and others of you have even died. Well, whatever it means to take in an unworthy manner there, certainly it is the case that it, it, it is an unworthy fashion to eat the Lord's Supper where belief And Christ, whom those elements symbolize, is not present in a person's heart. When sexual intimacy follows this pattern of covenant-renewing intimacy, it is an inherent display of beauty, and it is an inherent display of God's wisdom. One of the chief ways that lovemaking in marriage displays this beauty and displays divine wisdom is in its capacity to to do this thing that we're going to call unite diverse excellencies. Love making in marriage has the capacity to unite diverse excellencies, and as it does so, it has a particular power, a particular capacity to display beauty, to display the wisdom of God. What does that mean? If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 5. What, what does it mean to unite diverse excellencies? I didn't make this up. Jonathan Edwards and his uh, ex- explanation of a theology of beauty, or at least a partial explanation of a theology of beauty, once preached a sermon entitled The Excellency of Christ. It came from Revelation 5, and he, he's contending, he's, he's displaying the excellency of Christ or the beauty of Christ, and one of the ways that he spotlights or features the beauty of Christ is by showing how diverse excellencies can join in his person, or how they're united in his person. And, and, and he talks about how that's a display of remarkable beauty. So in Revelation 5, we'll pick it up in verse 1 here in just a second, we see Jesus described simultaneously as a lion and a lamb. Images, animals of certainly diverse excellency excellency, that we don't expect to be compatible, yet their diverse excellencies are united in the person of Christ. Verse 1, John says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So, so John's told to look for the lion. Verse 6, what does he see? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. and You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Edward says, John was told of a lion that had prevailed to open the book and probably expected to see a lion in his vision. But while he is expecting a lion, Behold, a lamb appears to open the book, an exceeding diverse kind of creature from a lion. A lion is a devourer, one that is wont to make terrible slaughter of others. And no creature more easily falls prey to him than a lamb. Christ is here represented not only as a lamb, a creature very liable to be slain, but a lamb as it had been slain. That is, with the marks of its deadly wounds appearing on it. Edward says, what I would summarize from the passage essentially is this. Here's his his fundamental thesis. There is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. He says, the lion and the lamb, though diverse kinds of creatures, have their peculiar excellencies. The lion excels in strength and majesty, appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness, patience. Christ is compared to both because of the diverse excellencies that wonderfully meet in him. And he goes on to elaborate throughout the rest of the, the whole rest of the sermon is the way the, Diverse excellencies are united in the life and the person of Jesus. Jesus unites infinite highness and infinite condescension. He unites infinite justice and infinite grace and so on. So I summarize the principle of what he's getting at as, as it is a display of beauty and divine wisdom as the union of diverse excellencies. In the mind of God, in the eyes of God, one of the marks of beauty is the union of diverse excellencies. So the lion-ness and the lamb-likeness of Jesus require union of diverse excellencies. The incarnation more broadly does, as does the doctrine of the Trinity, God's transcendence and immanence in his character, union of diverse excellencies. Even the atonement itself is the place where righteousness and peace have climactically kissed, where justice and mercy meet. The gospel itself requires the union of, of diverse excellencies. And so, forgive the aside, not so much an aside, it's an essential point to what we're doing, but in light of that, we can ask ourselves now, what is sexual intimacy, but a necessarily complementary, embodied display of the union of diverse excellencies? When a husband and wife in the private moments of their marital intimacy bodily renew their vows, one with another, They are also declaring the wisdom of God as they unite diverse excellencies in the beauty of two becoming one again, in the experience of their one fleshness, in the enjoyment of marital oneness. Well, that's the foundation. Sexual intimacy is a covenant renewal ceremony. It is especially given for the uniting of diverse excellencies. So the question for us now is how do we build on that foundational purpose of sexual intimacy in marriage, practically speaking? So we're moving now to uh, floor one. Again, forgive the crudeness of the illustration, but we're building on the foundation. If the foundation is what we've seen for it to be for marital sexual intimacy, then on floor one, what, what's the goal? What's the pursuit? The bullseye. The bullseye, practically speaking, of marital lovemaking shifts from the worldly preoccupation with physiology and technique. It shifts from that to the theological and personal preoccupation with intimate union. The goal is, and I don't intend to be crude, the goal is not the pursuit of the ultimate orgasm. It is instead the decision to partner in pursuing intimate union first and foremost. Now here's the good news. When that becomes the front and center practical pursuit of the couple in the marriage bed, all their sex is good sex, in the most important sense of that term. Where physiological preoccupation is prioritized the sex can only be considered good when that degree of satisfaction is achieved. Here's the sad irony, though. Where that becomes the goal and the attendant and expectant pressure is applied to achieve a certain degree of physiological satisfaction, their intimacy often actually suffers. They express deceptive displays of pleasure that are not there, relational hurt and perhaps withdrawal from one another as it concerns their newly found emotional pain in the matter of the marriage bed. Isn't that sadly and ironically interesting, right? That the wrong goal produces everything but the effect that was desired. That kind of sex is a painful case study in putting the cart before the horse. Again, very practically speaking, on the other hand, to go the other way, as true intimacy and union and closeness are built up, unnecessary psychological pressures go down, and in its wake, the experience of physiological enjoyment usually rises as well. Kind of like Jesus saying, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Or C.S. Lewis in another place talking about first and second things. He says, when first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased, right? When we make the quest for the most, the maximum amount of physical pleasure as I define it, the bullseye of the marriage bed, I'm asking sex to do, to do, to do too much, to pull too much weight. It's like, it's like taking... Uh, even even Jupiter and putting it at the center of the solar system and asking it to hold the rest of the planets in line. It wasn't built to do that. It doesn't have that kind of gravitational force. Want to have a good sex life in marriage? The answer isn't new toys and risque behaviors. The answer is to pursue Intimacy the intimate union of diverse excellencies in the marriage bed and more broadly in the total context of the marital union. Want a good sex life? Pursue a great prayer life. Why? That builds intimacy between the couple and the Lord. Want a good sex life? Date, play, have fun together. Why? It builds companionship and closeness and intimacy. Want a good sex life in marriage? Confess your sins to one another and receive confession wisely and appropriately. Why? It builds spiritual closeness and trust and intimacy. Sex is the sign of the covenant. It is not the totality of the covenant. Its capacity to to serve its purpose is diminished to the degree that it is either an entirely neglected expression of intimacy or to the degree that it becomes the only expression of intimacy that the couple pursues. And we also need to be careful not to forget what sexual intimacy is ultimately pointing to. Of course, in in, in the immediate context of the husband and wife, it's pointing to covenant renewal ceremony and this display of beauty. But even, even beyond that, sexual intimacy is pointing to the fact that we were made for an intimacy and a union of a far greater kind, weren't we? So there is a union that has begun to be experienced for the believer in this life, that will be fulfilled in the next life. And when we, when, I mean, the, ima- the imagery of Scripture in, in, describing heaven and, and, and the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth, I mean, the imagery is, part of the point is is it's virtually indescribable, right? It's, it's hard to get words around the kind of intimacy that will be known then, but we can anticipate that when that day comes, the love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that we will be ushered into will be so great that the best lovemaking you've ever had will seem like complete and utter child's play in comparison to the intimacy and unity and safety and joy that we will all feel when faith becomes sight. It's hard to believe now, right? I I remember um, my wife and I, in the time leading up to our wedding, we, we, we didn't tell each other this, and we would not have told one another that at the time, but we were sort of secretly playing, praying, you know, Lord, could you please tarry the coming because we want to experience marriage, and, you know, but I know we're, amen, come Lord Jesus, but, you know, kind of. Uh, it's, it's, it's you, you, you don't, you don't, what, what's sex? Sex is a forward pointer. It is a forward pointer that one of the things that couples most enjoy in this life, when it is not present in the next life, the reality, whatever, is, whatever is true of the reality of the next life, and of course it's non-sexual, but whatever is true of that reality, it must be so great that when this isn't there and we don't miss it, that must be staggering. is that amazing? We won't have it, and we won't miss it, because the shadow will have given way to the reality. I say in class sometimes, it's sort of like... Uh, if you think redemptive historically, it's sort of like living in the era of the sacrificial system prior to the fulfillment, Christ's fulfillment of that. That was good and appropriate in its time. But now that we live on the other side of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, nobody looks back and says, I wish I could slaughter some you know, lambs for the forgiveness of my sins. The shadow has dissolved into its reality. The foreshadow has met its fulfillment, and the fulfillment is greater, Right? So it's 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 holistic, and as wonderful as this is now, it's child's play in some sense in comparison to the intimacy that is to come. Okay, floor two, going to get get through this and leave some time for for discussion. Um, so we've got, the, we've got the foundation, covenant renewal ceremony, union of diverse excellencies. We've got floor one, the goal is intimacy, right? Their practical goal in the marriage bed is intimacy. Uh, floor two, can you say a little bit more about that? How do, how, do you, how do you do that in the context of marriage in a way that reflects a complementary design for the husband and the wife? And so I, here I would just say very quickly that in order to pursue the same goal of intimacy, in the marriage bed, and, and now we're talking physical intimacy specifically. In order to pursue the same goal, they have to do different things, corresponding things, complementary things. But different things to do the same to do the same thing. They've got to do different things. It's sort of like the analogy of the nut and the bolt, right? The nut and the bolt want to fasten a board together to do the same thing. Fasten the board together. They got to do different things. This is what's happening here in the context of the marriage bed as well. He, I was. so more practical still here. He pursues this agenda by putting the pursuit of her pleasure first. He pursues this agenda of the the intimate union of diverse excellencies, the pursuit pursuit of intimacy, by by putting the pursuit of her pleasure first. Now, just a quick little aside here. Um, It's common knowledge that men and women typically have different biorhythms as it concerns their sex drive and uh, the degree to which their appetites warm up and all these kinds of things, right? I don't have a verse for this, but I think very consonant with what Jim was talking about in the previous session, I don't think those different rhythms are part of the fall at all. I, I, I think, I think the, the, the complementary nature of different rhythms and having to lean out of one's interests and seek the interest of the other is part of the design. I think that's a good thing. So in other words, I think, I think Adam and Eve booted up with different uh, biorhythms, as it were, so that Adam was drawn out of the pursuit of his own pleasure singularly to the fulfillment of, of, of his bride's pleasure. I think that, that, that's a good thing from the beginning. That's not part of the curse. Uh, that's, part of the, that's part of the design. So the husband. The husband, whose rhythms are more quickly awakened and easily satisfied, builds on this foundation in the context of the marriage bed, by learning to defer his fulfillment for the sake of preferring his wife's. Now this is a place where there are some techniques that can help and are worth discussing and and happy to to discuss some of those in a bit if you would like to. Why does he do this? Why Why does he learn to defer his own fulfillment for the sake of his brides? Because it's part of building intimacy in the context of diverse excellencies. He's not interested only in what he can gain from this endeavor but her fulfillment as well. He should as eagerly desire her fulfillment as much as his own. And if he does not, she will not find their diversity, and in this case, his selfishness, to be either intimate or excellent. What does she do? She's got to respond by doing her complimentary part. She, this is how she's a suitable, suitable helper in the marriage bed. Jim, again, Jim was talking about this in the, previ- in the previous session. Um, they're indispensable to the operation, not only of procreation, but of, of achieving sexual intimacy. He can't do it by himself. She can't do it by himself. They have to, in order to do the same thing, they've got to do different things. What does she do? She has to be honest. Or more uh, in the vernacular... By not faking an expression of pleasure that she genuinely isn't experiencing, if he's in other words, right? So so now keep this in mind. Right, there's a, the, the the long-term goal is what the couple is after, okay? The long-term goal, and and in order to to do that, there has to be a kind of willingness jointly to slay the male ego. That that gets to be a pro- a problem, right? So her 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 desire sometimes is is You know, she knows maybe his identity, his ego is bound up in in being a fulfilling lover, and so she sends mixed signals. The problem is she's not helping him meet his objective of deferring his needs to fulfill hers if she's presenting a moving target, right? The moving target, he doesn't know how to actually do his part. And so they both have to make the sort of joint determination. We're, gonna, we're just going to, for the sake of the long run, we're going to set the ego to the side. It doesn't have a place in the marriage bed as we learn what it means to unite diverse rhythms and diverse excellencies in the pursuit of this common goal. And they take the long-term, uh, the long-term view, right? And they prefer intimacy and trust, to secrecy and hiding. So so around so, so 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 the marriage bed then is not reducible to the to the moment of marital intimacy, is it? It's the prayers beforehand, it's the conversation after, it's the safe, it's the safety of being able to communicate to one another what would be more satisfying, what was not enjoyable, how can I be a better lover to you in the context of marriage? Those are great questions to ask, right? I mean, more broadly, husbands and wives should be asking with, with some frequency and husbands initiating, how can I be a better husband? How can I give you a greater sense of security? How can I make you feel more loved? Uh, and she, she asking, how can I make you feel more respected? But the same, the same kind of, right, to pursue intimacy that, it, that, 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 that extends beyond the moment of, of, of sexual union, there, there's gotta be the broader expression of intimacy and the safety to dialogue and to laugh. Talk about best practices, one of the things we tell couples in, in, in premarital counseling, one of the best things you can do, one of the best things you can do is laugh, right? Not at each other, but with one another because you're gonna, you're gonna fumble sometimes and you're gonna, you're gonna make the very best effort and it's not gonna work and you'll get tangled up in some, in, in, in some endeavors that just, wow, how did, how did that happen? And, and, and why did that not work? And it's okay to step back and decompress and go, hey, we're still making love, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we're still making, and, 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 and that's part of what's being pursued over the course of the long run. Um, another, another theological bit here, the day of your wedding is in some respects analogous to the day of justification. There's a legal reality that's established, but experientially, you're not very good at it yet. Right at any part of it yet. Probably the communication isn't as great as you think it is. At least after the honeymoon phase wears off, the merging of finances and who spends all—all—you've got to grow into that. Like sanctification experientially, you have to become what you are. The same thing is true in the marriage bed. God forbid, God forbid that a couple's best sex were their honeymoon sex, and it was downhill from there. Right? We tell we we tell couples praise God that when you go on your honeymoon, that will be the best sex, Lord willing. Uh, that you've ever had to that point and also the worst sex that you'll ever have for the rest of your life. May God make it the case that it starts here and it's onward and upward from there not only as you become better lovers in the marriage bed but better uh, uh, uniters of diverse excellencies in the totality of the context of, of one's relationship. So uh, best practices question sometimes comes up here. Happy to talk about that in just a second. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wind this down and leave time for some question. But I will say this, in the end, the beauty of complementary life-uniting intimacy is best displayed 50 plus years after saying I do. Because 50 years later, not only are he and she, Lord willing, more skilled love makers, but their lives will display the marks of years and years of the intertwined intimacy of uniting diverse excellencies. My prayer for us is that God would make that so for those of us who are married in increasing fashion to a display of the wisdom or the glory of his wisdom and the beauty of this design. I'd love to pray that for us now, and then uh, we've got a handful of minutes, uh, 10, 12 or so, before we need to dismiss to take questions or dialogue if you have some. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, this is quick and uh, uh, to the point, um, but. For my part, Lord, I, I, I feel like there's some things that have, that have been shared that have certainly been enriching and encouraging and worthy of celebration uh, in our own uh, relationship and, and, and ability to talk to other couples about that. Well, we're very thankful for the way that what we consider theology, which is in, in many respects just the way you've woven the world together, is so practical and that we can think uh, very, Uh, concretely about how you desire your people and in this case in the context of marriage to display your glory and to display a picture of beauty uh, in the lives that you have called us to so lord would you strengthen us to that end for maybe there are some in here who who counsel others and and would be able to encourage them along these lines Uh, perhaps some of us need to get better at pursuing the intimacy of uniting diverse excellencies in any number of ways, in the context of our, of our own marriages. Lord, none of them are perfect, so certainly we could all grow, and so we ask for your grace to do that very thing. And uh, these next handful of minutes, Lord, for, for dialogue and conversation, we give them to you as well. We pray that they would be profitable, and that you would continue to prosper the work that you're doing this weekend uh, through this conference. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, where'd Rick go? What do we have, 10 minutes, 8 minutes? 8 minutes, okay. Anything? Comment, question, idea? I think premarital counseling sometimes is for weddings do you recommend any reading for you? Yes, um, I'll just tell you, there, 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 are, there are plenty of good ones. Um, what we do when we do premarital counseling, um, it's uh, in terms of the reading material, Uh, We use the Keller's book, Tim and Kathy Keller's The Meaning of Marriage, because that's really good on the big picture, right, the the, setting, the theological foundation, and then insofar as it concerns um, the technique part of sexual intimacy, um, there's a handful, but the one that we've kind of gone back to again and again is a book by Ed and Gay Wheat called Intended for Pleasure, and um, they're octogenarians, I, I think, they're in their 80s, they may not, I'm not even sure if they're alive still. But he is a uh he's an OBGYN and uh, they're believers and so they combine um, good practical guidance with medical expertise and um, so we, we found that useful. It's it's funny, I mean on our on our on our honeymoon, so somebody when we did when we went to perennial counseling, we were assigned that and on our honeymoon when there was Fumbling to figure out what we're doing with this. I mean, Hollywood makes you think you're born knowing how to be a skilled lovemaker, and it's just so far from the truth. Um, the neat thing is, you—I mean, and every man's not called to to make love to every woman or vice versa. In the in the intimacy of this partnership, they learn one another's rhythms, and they grow and they build together. But so on our honeymoon, we took that book, and and in some of our moments of laughter, right, and and fumbling. Um, you know, we'd giggle, and, and then somebody would hop out of bed and grab that book and say, okay, well, what are we supposed to do here, you know? And it's like getting a degree or something. But, yeah, it was helpful. What do you use? We use that one as well, but not the meaning of marriage. I'm not going to remember his syllabus, but he uses a couple of other books. Oh, Okay. Good. I have a a friend, um, I think Rick knows him, I know Jim knows him, who uh, is is a pastoral counselor at a church in D.C. now. And when we first started uh, getting involved in premarital counseling, his name's D. I said, D, what do I do? Can you send me your stuff? And so he just sent me a whole bunch of stuff. And we've kind of adapted it, but it's really, really helpful. Oh, okay. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Right. Yeah. Good. What else? Comments, questions, feedback? Yes, sir. Have you had uh, any success with found personality compatibility, Myers-Briggs, I know less, uh, the parents came up with a new one. Have, have you found that to be helpful at all? Yeah, um, so uh, that's not our back. Psychology is not our background, so I don't do a whole lot with that. We do talk about some different personalities and temperaments, and in the uniting of diverse excellencies, it's not surprising that opposites attract psychologically as well. So we talk about that a little bit, but we don't have them do. I know there are some good tests. Um, There's the Prepare and Rich test. I think that Biola offers for for students. Um, We just don't have the mastery or capacity to do much more than kind of talk about that in broad. But the diverse, other than to communicate that the diverse, even the love languages stuff, right? You know that diversity is. It's not an inherent flaw. Now, the thing that, th- that you do have to be careful with, I think, is, is that you don't use the, you know, the tools of understanding someone else's love language manipulatively. Um, and I think that's at least you know, potentially a risk that somebody could manipulate with the application of, of leveraging this to get what they want. But, but as long as you know, you're attending to um, the heart and the pursuit of intimacy, I think that can be very beneficial. Yeah, I just, I'm, not, I'm not expert to say a whole lot about that. What else? Yes, sir. Um, we've been married for thirty-five, almost thirty-five years. So why aren't you up here leading the talk? <laughs> well, one of the questions that we've asked ourselves over time is, uh, as raising our children in a Christian family, and where where do you drop? Where do you close the door hmm. and become? Private intimacy versus public intimacy, because in some cases we we think maybe we sheltered our children too much from the fact that wow we love each other. Right. So where is that? Yeah, great question. And again, people who are further down the road than we are, uh, probably I'm going to ask you the same question here in just a second. Um, (laughs) Is you 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 you've probably learned the answer. so, obviously, there is a place for, for privacy and things that the children shouldn't be exposed to and the, and the closed door. And boy, sometimes children just don't get the concept of the closed door, do they? Um, it's, it's, it's like a closed locked door is an invitation to pound on the door and, and, and ask, why can't I be a part of whatever? We, 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 we do have, a, what's the expression, fear of missing out? We have a couple of fear of missing out children who when they feel like they're being excluded, it's I mean, that's when the antenna go up and I wanna know, uh, why I 'm not invited, or what you guys are talking about, and so uh, yeah, I mean th- I think there's some real strategy that, that is that is worth uh, thinking about in terms of ca- carving out and prioritizing even time for that kind of kind of intimacy. and so you know thinking very carefully about times in the day or play, uh, rhythms where you might be less distracted um, Maybe maybe there's an opportunity after the kids are dropped off at school to to you know show up at work an hour later and work. And I mean, honestly, I mean it's it's worth fighting for. And and with children, sometimes you have to fight to preserve that space for intimacy. That's okay. I mean that's I I think I think that in and of itself is an is an expression of intimacy. It says you're worth carving out time and space to to pursue. Um, but uh, the, the flip side of your question is, I mean, I, I do think that, uh, I think it's good for the children to see appropriate expressions of mom and dad's physical closeness. I think it b- builds security for them. It builds safety. I think one of the most important things um, that, that, in my understanding, a child needs to know is that mom and dad love each other, and they're sticking together. So, um we, we my wife and I display natural affection uh to one another we we're, we are careful about how it's manifest, but we do want our children to see us hug and hold hands and caress and even kiss um you know in inappropriate in appropriate, uh, in appropriate e- expressions and sometimes you you, you 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 can you can do the misnomer there i don't know how this is being being filmed and edited but uh um so yeah, it's worth thinking about carefully. Our kids will sometimes giggle and laugh and and our fomos will um you know, they'll they see us hugging and they immediately want to make it a family hug and they'll get in there and and you know, we welcome we welcome we welcome them into the family hug. Um but it's kind of like what but they they need to know there's some space for intimacy for mom and dad that doesn't belong to them. And so we talk about uh uh, again, in age-appropriate ways, the purpose of, of, of sexual intimacy and, and that God made you to be loved and before the foundation of the world, he planned the union of your mom and dad so that you would be received into their uh, family as an expression of his love to you. And that is even, you know, a more more bigger display of his desire to to love you. And, and, and perhaps he has a husband or a wife for you one day that we're already praying for, and he's, so I, I do think those pieces are helpful. I may not have said anything particularly useful in light of the, the question you're asking, so let me ask if there's a better answer. I, I don't know. Okay. I, I just, I can tell you that I think in some ways we may have, you know, of people know our daughters. so it, it, in some ways we may have overprotected them mm. to the point that, you know, they may have thought that the marriage bed only happened on our honeymoon. And, oh, right, right. And, <laughs> and and you know, it's not that we weren't affectionate or hold sure. hands, but it's, it's that hey, you know, mom and dad right. have a relationship that you don't see. Right. And I don't know how to communicate that, and I think it may be something that may be easier. I don't know in today's light with the fact that uh, sex is so prevalent versus what it was back in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So I think it requires a lot of wisdom to know, Uh, right, how to, yeah, so great question. Uh, Rick, how are we doing on time? Should we dismiss? Okay, One, one final thought, comment, anything? Yes, sir. So, uh, in the age that we live in, the the homosexual community, the transgender community, I could see the possibility of them taking your points here mm. and trying to incorporate them. Right. Um, what would be, what would you say would be the biggest stumbling block there? Right. How do we keep them from doing that? Yeah, so I think the big issue. So if, if if central to this is the union of diverse excellencies, in much the way that Jim was talking about in the previous session, the 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 man man marriage or the female female marriage does not allow for the capacity either procreatively or by way of sexual intimate the design of sexual intimacy to unite diverse excellencies. It unites sameness of excellencies that in that case are not intended to be to be united. So that would be my resp- my basic response to that. Other than that, listen to Jim's talk from earlier and the one that Denny's about to talk to. So, all right. God bless you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.